welcome to another edition of the 1% Better Podcast with your host, Rob O'Donoghue. Tonight's book is called Sway and Neve has kindly put her, herself forward for it without me going out and begging people to do it. So that's that's always good. I, I, I don't like getting to the begging part, but... Um, <laughs> I will do it if I have to do it. Uh, uh, but Neve, all all yours. Really looking forward to this one. Great, thanks, Rob. Um, it's good to be here uh, to write this again. So the book. I mean, I kind of struggled to condense it down. There's just so much in it, and it's it's massively um, academic. So um, I suppose the only thing I would say about the book is it's not for the faint-hearted. So if you're going to read it, make sure you give it the time and attention. It needs you're going to definitely need a notebook um, to take notes. There's so many references and footnotes and studies that are referenced that it becomes a little bit overwhelming. So I've tried to um, make note of some of those things here that I can share after the session, so that if anyone's interested in anything that I mention, you can find it easily. But yeah, that's just one thing I will say. Um, so this book is called Sway, and it's about unraveling unconscious bias. Um, and it's by a lady called Dr. Pragya Agarwal, and she is a an activist, a behavioral and data scientist, speaker and consultant. Um, she's held the Leverhulme Fellowship, and she's a senior academic in the UK um, with publications on reading lists across the world. Um, and she's written two books. So Sway was her first book, and she followed it up with something called um, I Wish We Knew What to Say, Talking with Children About Race. So that's the next book I'm going to read because I have three children. And this is obviously a topic that we're all engaging with hugely in the media at the moment. So I'm looking forward to reading that one. Um, she's a passionate campaigner for women's rights and has won many awards. And she also has two um, mini podcast series is called Outside the Boxes and Wish We Knew What to Say About Race. Those two podcasts, I'll send links to those as well after the session. Um, and basically the book, like it's huge, it's five parts with 12 chapters, uh, about 500 pages exploring unconscious and implicit bias. Um, and basically her argument is that research into unconscious bias is key to understanding and tackling social discrimination. She says that um, unconscious bias doesn't explain all the prejudices and discrimination that we have in society and that there's a danger of it being reduced to a trend and being used to excuse all sorts of behaviors um, but she thinks that makes it even more crucial and urgent for us to understand what it really means, how it's formed and what, uh, how it's underpinned by scientific principles and theories as well. Um, and I'm sorry, I'm actually really nervous for some reason today. So I'm just going to try and steady myself here. Um, so she looks, first of all, at how biases are linked intrinsically to our notion of self-concept and self-identity. And she's looking primarily at examples where a bias is misdirected and then creates a prejudice and also discriminatory behavior through like a negative association with certain groups or communities. So obviously the first things that might come to mind are gender and race, but she does explain in the book that it goes far beyond that and gives many examples of how, which I'll touch on shortly. <laughs> Um, she also talks about how positive biases can be problematic um, if they create a negative discrimination against someone else. Um, herself, she was born in India in a deeply patriarchal society, so she has a really deep personal knowledge of, of how these kind of biases are formed. 
and that started her interest in this area as well. So she basically uh, calls herself a rebel and she says that she was a nonconformist to the stereotypes of meek, quiet Indian women. She was the first female lecturer employed in an engineering department um, and it was suggested that she was appointed as a result of diversity and inclusion efforts. So in her early career, this really impacted her and that she calls that out in the book is the reason that she started to study this area. Um, she says she was guilty at the start of shortening her name to make it easier for people to pronounce. Uh, she watered down her Indian dress, her Indianness, by just trying to conform to sort of Western norms, if you like. And she looks back at that experience and says, you know, she, that was kind of done very naively. But as she grew her interest in this area, she realized what she was doing um, and it fueled her to keep pursuing this area of study. And she says that her work finds synergies between society and psychology. So it looks at how changing technology and the way that we see the world shapes our biases and also that we are being shaped by the way that our brain processes these biases and the moral and ethical questions that surround this um, unconscious bias. So in the book, she focuses on the biases that take us away from absolute, logical, rational decision-making. These biases that exist without our conscious knowledge, that manifest themselves in our actions and reactions without us realizing it. And they're rearing their heads when we least expect it, sometimes taking us by surprise. And I think that was the most powerful thing for me as I read this book. You, As you read it, you start to recognize how guilty you are of a lot of these kind of implicit bias behaviors, even though it can be quite uncomfortable. And she gives many examples of how it might play out in your own life. So, you know, I think that this book, I would say, is essential reading for everybody at the moment. I don't know about where you guys work, but it, in my employer at the moment, there's a huge drive around inclusion and diversity. And I grew up in, in Southern Africa and I was always the assuming that, you know, I'm not racist, I don't have any uh, of these racial biases that are discussed in the book, but it turns out that it's not that straightforward. Um, and she basically calls on everyone to, that we have a moral duty to examine our own biases in all areas of life. So I'll just kind of run through some of the examples um, chapter by chapter. I won't go into every chapter, but I've kind of summarized the kind of key takeaways here that might give a good overview of what the book entails. Um, so she basically calls out that when she's talking about unconscious bias, it's definitely, it's something called implicit bias. And the concept of what that was emerged only in 2006, which I found quite surprising. So it's, these are all relatively new concepts. Um, and she says it's basically the new science of unconscious mental processes that have substantial bearing on discrimination law. So Everything that she discusses in the book is actually backed up by scientific research. Um, loads and loads of studies on brain neural pathways. Neuroscience have demonstrated that many biases are formed through our life, through conditioning, but that we do need to take some responsibility for our inherent biases um, because that's when we can take control of them. Um, it's problematic to capture and pinpoint because it's hidden, and so it can often be in complete contrast to what our beliefs might be. Um, and she talks about the unreliability of psychometric tests, like um, there's one called the IAT test, um, and it's been proven to be ineffective at actually identifying um, unconscious bias. So if unconscious bias cannot be measured reliably, 
how can we really take control of it, she asked. And if I don't now know about it, am I really responsible for it? So obviously the areas that she's, she's looking at would be race, gender, but she says it goes further into disability, sexuality, body size, even profession, and, and so on. And she highlights the role that comedians can play in exposing um, unconscious biases in society, which I thought was really interesting. So she talks about how they use unconscious bias to deliver their effective punchlines by touching on incongruities in, in society. And I think two people who really do this quite well around the areas of race and gender would be Bill Burr and Lois C.K. I don't know if you know either of them. I mean, Bill Burr can just have you almost just <laughs> cringing. He talks race, actually, but uh, he would be somebody who came to mind when she referenced comedians there. So she gives some kind of light examples of bias just to start us off. <laughs> um, she was saying when YouTube launched the video upload feature, five to 10% of videos that were uploaded were uploaded upside down. The Google developers were baffled and they realized that it actually wasn't poor design, that they had actually only considered right-handed users when they designed the feature. So their unconscious bias had overlooked the fact that left-handed users would turn the phone by 180 degrees. So, I mean, that is quite a light bias, but as a left-handed person, I kind of felt that one to my core, you know. Um, and she talks as well about how societal norms tend to define our biases. So right-handedness would be a societal norm. Also, being a man is actually a societal norm, Rob, and uh, John, if you didn't know. <laughs> Males are the standard reference population, which results in very obvious gender bias. So... She talks then in chapter one about gut instinct, and it's all around this thinking fast and slow concept, if you've read that book by Daniel Kahneman. Yeah. Um, and she starts out talking about how she had a situation with her daughter where she went to the doctor because her daughter wasn't well, and the doctor kind of fobbed her off a couple of times. And so over the course of two weeks, she had a flu. And then one evening, she just thought, no, actually, something's not right. I have to rush to the emergency went there and it turned out her daughter was in sepsis shock. So she talks about maternal instinct and just gives a whole load of studies in the area of medicine where they've proven um, through various studies that doctors tend to disregard mothers, um, kind of how, how mothers present to emergency rooms or to, to their practice um, and that they tend to kind of dismiss women as hysterical mothers. And in so doing, they can often miss very serious um, diagnoses. I don't know if anyone else has I've definitely experienced that with a doctor before. So, you know, I can relate to that hugely. Um, research shows that health professionals are less likely to take women and girls seriously and that their pain and illnesses are often not tackled immediately. And then there's even more disturbing studies that show that people from minority ethnic communities face huge prejudice in this area and that they were much less likely to receive the correct medical care. Um, she lists that um, African-American women are 10 times more likely to die in childbirth than Caucasian women. Um, and there was a huge study done into coronary disease, like in, in minor, uh, minority communities, sorry. So like African-Americans would have been hugely disproportionately suffering from coronary, coronary um, episodes as a result of not being taken seriously when they present to the doctor. So 
there's she lists a huge number of studies here that back this up. Um, so it just go, shows how dangerous you know these sort of biases can be. Um, she talks about how the problem is that our recollection of past memories and contexts might not always be accurate and are dependent on our current emotional state. So we make ourselves believe the things that confirm our biases. And this idea of trusting your instincts is actually a visual matching game. So we're basically, we're not naturally rational. And when we get information overload, we filter out the noise. So we're only, we're likely to only see the parts of the world that have, that are familiar to us and we tend to notice things that are repeating so that's why biases like this occur in the medical world has everyone seen the invisible gorilla video yeah you know that one okay so she referenced that uh, the invisible gorilla there were two guys in the u.s who basically got a woman to dress up in a gorilla suit and run through a basketball game and pound her chest for a few seconds before running off but um, when they showed it to people, they asked them just to look at the basketball game. And something like 50% of people didn't even notice the woman running across. And that kind of served to illustrate how we only tend to see what, we're, what we have in front of us. So they weren't expecting the gorilla, so they didn't look for one. And that, again, kind of illustrated how it happens in, in the medical world that bias can take you off down the wrong path in terms of diagnostics and so on. Um, so there was also a study that Solomon Ash did in 1955 where people were asked to compare the size of two lines. And when they gave the answer in private, they got it correct. But then when they gave it in public, um, because they were afraid of getting it wrong, they actually amended their answers. And something like 38% of people got it wrong the second time, which kind of illustrated herd mentality and confirmation bias that we we tend to like to find the path um, and this is a huge there's a whole number of studies like this that followed that confirmed this as well um it talks about how instincts help us to assess people quickly and they're essential to survival but they also form the biases that would cloud our instincts in this process so it's a bit of a catch-22 um and she says that often bias is created when a particular object or person doesn't meet the normative standards in society. So we alienate, stigmatize, or don't trust them. And if you remember that video on the BBC where the guy is giving his um, interview and then the two kids run in, did you see that one? And then 70% of people that the author surveyed on that video assumed that she was the nanny and she was actually his wife. So that was another nice example of, of how these biases Performed. So in chapter one, she talks mainly about race um, and she talks about how skin color is often one of the first cues for assigning group memberships and that we all do this no matter what, uh, no matter how much we deny it. So that's an uncomfortable truth, really. Um, there was a PBS documentary in 1968, the day after Martin Luther King was assassinated, um, where a teacher showed how easy it was to turn seven-year-olds into hate mongers. And what she did was divide them by blue eyes and brown eyes. And she asked the blue-eyed group to start. She basically told the blue-eyed group that the brown-eyed group were inferior to them and that they were the kind of superior group of seven-year-olds. And within a week, the way that the blue-eyed kids were treating the brown-eyed kids in the playground was apparently quite shocking. Um, 
like the completely outcast about there was basically like it was like lord of the <laughs> lord of the flies up in there so yeah um this discrimination that was based on eye color was a really controversial but landmark experiment that showed how environmental cues can shape our biases and reinforce in-group memberships and then when hurricane katrina happened there were new photos and they reported black and white people very differently so you'd have a black man wading through the water with um, goods under his arm and he was looting where a white person was wading through the water surviving after encountering you know groceries floating past that they were so fortunate to find so it just really um, highlighted that racial bias in the states which we've all become so aware of in, in recent years um, and I thought that was very powerful because I can remember those um, that kind of journalism as well um, also that talks about clinical instinct um, and the clinician called Atul Kawande wrote a book called Complications which talks about how in high pressure situations you're much more likely to rely on your instinct and I think others have touched on this in previous book clubs as well um, around the black box thinking uh, so it recognizes that it's an accepted feature of medical emergency practice and that it's largely accurate, but it can fail when the medic doesn't identify with the patient. So again, it brings race into the conversation where if you're a white doctor, you're less likely to be able to use that incident correctly when dealing with a patient from uh, an ethnic group that you don't identify with, which is quite scary. Um, so she found that 44% was... Um, medics were accurate when operating on instinct alone so that leaves another 66% where you're wondering what what are the factors that cause that not to work and she suggests that it could be to do with in-group, out-group associations around race. Um, in chapter two she talks, it, it gets into the kind of cognitive side of things and it talks a lot about neuroscience and the evolutionary um, I suppose, the development of the theories that bring us up to today and our understanding of how the brain works in social and, you know, neuroscience, neuroscience contexts. Um, so she talks about how we're pro if we adapt to survive and flourish, why are we programmed to resort to errors and biases? Is it a design flaw? And she says that our unconscious biases could be seen as adaptive mechanisms. Um, so our brains have evolved to reason adaptively rather than rationally or truthfully. And this, she outlines a behavioralist versus a cognitivist approach. Um, and it just talks about how, <laughs> um, you know, going back to our ancestral humans, how fear of threat might, might have existed to prevent disease transmission. Um, and that the cost of falsely assuming the peacefulness on the part of an aggressor would outweigh the low cost of elevated vigilance. So it all kind of started with a fearful reaction to dangerous things and that somehow we've you know, carried that forward up to today from an evolutionary standpoint. Um, and then to, she brings it into the present day talking about a study in the University of British Columbia where images of African-American men were smiling and scowling and shown to participants in dim light and bright light. And afterwards, they had to match words about their beliefs um, in a dangerous world. So those people who encountered the images in ambient darkness were actually associated those images with more derogatory stereotypes. Um, so I thought that was really interesting. 
and she has a huge like the thing about this book that I struggled with is that there was so much information and it's not you know it's structured in such a way it's written kind of in a very narrative form so it's not like there's bullet points on each topic and she doesn't really split it out into gender race religion so I did find it quite hard to condense and to put everything into different categories so I'm just that I noticed with my notes everything was a little bit jumbled um and that's one thing I would, that would be one thing I'd say with the book, like you probably need to read it a couple of times to digest what it's saying. Um, sorry, guys. <laughs> so she talked about the, there was three theories of implicit bias formation. It's around how your brain creates shortcuts. Um, error management theory, which is basically when you say I'm better safe than sorry. And artifact theory, which is, that biases are a product of applying the wrong strategies in the wrong contexts. Um, her, from social psychology, we, they say we form biases to form a sense of self and identity because we're all basically selfish. And, you know, in 1906, William Graham Sumner had a book called Folkways on ethnocentrism. And that's when the concept of in-group bias came about, and which, which basically says we reject those that are unlike us and that bias exists as a result of group boundaries um, defined by one or more observable characteristics such as language, accent, skin color, and religion. And there's also an argument that self-worth, distinct identity, and distance from the outgroup uh, all feed into um, the development of these biases. Um, there was a study done that when people are trying to conform to the views of their neighbors, they lose their natural abilities to observe and evaluate their environment closely. And that we overly rely on social information. Um, so the individuals spend too much time copying their neighbours. And this is likely to be the norm. And I suppose that kind of just rung true for me. Because I've noticed in my neighbourhood if one person renovates their house. <laughs> over the course of the next few months you'll start to see scaffolds going up around the place. Um, so I think it's true. Uh, individuals in the most extreme cases, use this to justify atrocities such as the um, Jews during the Holocaust um, as part of their moral compass. So they believed that it, it was because the group they identified with also thought it was okay. And that's, you know, obviously that was a very complex process, but that's what you called out in the book. <laughs> um, yeah, sorry guys. So... <laughs> In chapter three, she looks at children and stereotyping by race and gender. So she says that um, children as young as six start stereotyping by race and gender. And children as young as nine months can show preference for race, uh, color, race and color of those they're most exposed to in their first year of life. So that's really interesting. Um, children with Williams syndrome do not demonstrate this behavior and the first indication, it, this was the first indication of an absence of racial stereotyping in a human group. Um, Williams syndrome is a rare syndrome. Um, I actually know a girl whose child has it, so I'm going to run this by her after. Um, basically, they found out that the neural pathway responsible for racial bias is actually absent in children with, or people with Williams syndrome, um, which means there must be different neural behavioral mechanisms for racial and gender bias which is really interesting and is that just ra racial or gender bias does it does it exclude other types of um 
diversities that like might be disabilities or yeah she it was something there was something there about how it it doesn't apply with Williams syndrome it only applied through racial but it it has led to studies around racial and gender bias so it is specific yeah Mm. Yeah. Um, which is (laughs) mind-blowing and then also there's a lot around the brain structure and amygdala seems to be the key thing around bias it plays a huge role neural neural what's the word neural behavior <laughs> um around the assessment of fear and threat and she called out alex hanold's film free solo have you seen that there's this guy alex hanold and he climbs um, mountains without a rope <laughs> so he goes up practically vertical mountains without any safety support and they did a study of his brain and basically his amygdala doesn't light up um in response to fear or threat made like very minimal reactions so that just showed that the the amygdala plays such a crucial part in in fear and threat responses um so they believe it plays a really important role in our implicit biases and how we process those um there was a study done about in-group out-group where football fans witnessed a fan of their favorite football team um, and their rival football team experiencing pain and they were able to choose to help the other person by enduring the physical pain themselves to reduce the other person's pain. Um, so that was a study around empathy. And what that showed was that there's two processes at play to determine our level of empathy. And that's another neurobiological thing, which is interesting. Um, and it showed that the more we know about the outgroup, the more we can basically show them empathy and the more that the more we know the less we fear and the more we care so i think that's an interesting lesson um they looked also at something called default bias with gambling um so basically the study was uh <laughs> showing i'm lost here sorry <laughs> oh god uh, no I'm gone. No, <laughs> I'm going to skip to the next part. Sorry. Mm-hmm. Uh, she talks about truth bias. So uh, the percentage of statements judged as truthful um, are higher than those that are correctly classified as truthful overall. And that is really um, relevant to political parties who can create um, momentum and use herd mentality to influence behaviors and choices. And there's a lot about facial recognition as well in, in this book. Um, talking about how we use faces to basically confirm in or out group uh, biases. So in 2009, there was a study asking to rate female faces attractiveness. And the second time they, they asked them to rate this, people changed their opinions based in the direction of the group judgment of attractiveness. So I thought that was interesting. Um, so there's brain studies that were done in Harvard that show we make decisions about people who we perceive to be similar to us and when we use different brain processes than when we judge people who are dissimilar to us. So that's really interesting. Um, we're also better at recognizing our own race and our own gender's facial expressions and what they mean. So she says that faces play a key role in determining memberships. We're biased to find some faces more trustworthy than others. And again, as it's all down to the amygdala um, and interestingly, they said people with bilateral damage to the amygdala were not able to judge faces as trustworthy or untrustworthy. So I guess what I took from this was that 
a lot of our biases are actually partially to do with our neurobiology as well, which is fascinating. Mm. Uh, but she doesn't let us off the hook. You know, she said that it's not good enough to use that as an excuse. Um, and that we all have an obligation to really challenge our own biases. And her basic premise of the whole book really is that we'll never overcome bias. It's just inherent in all of us. But we have a social and moral responsibility to learn what our biases are and try to them. And the only way of doing that is by becoming aware of them. And that's where that inclusion and diversity piece comes in, because like that with the children recognizing different races that they're exposed to before nine months, like the more inclusive and diverse we are, the more likely is we can arrive these biases just by exposure to people we would consider to be in an outgroup, for example. So, I mean, that was the overall takeaway that I took from the book. Um, if I was trying to condense it down into one sentence, but in the 12 chapters, I mean, I just wouldn't be able to <laughs> talk about it in one hour, but she goes through gender, race, age, um, it just religion, um, and yeah, basically those object object objectification theory, um, and those it's just so huge, just the breadth of the book that I could not summarize it through tonight <laughs> within the hour. But I've tried my best to give a feel for what the two discusses in the book. <laughs> I, I was going to say, if does does she give um actions to take to? overcome right like in, in the work i do we there's so much going on around advice to clients around diversity equity and inclusion and unconscious bias is coming up as the number one problem and education is uh, is not enough right education yeah. is just just what you shared everything that she said is educational there but what are the actions that you can take to address and change the behaviors and i'd just be interested to see if she shared anything around that um, yeah, she says that, you know, training doesn't work without changing your attitudes and without addressing the systemic inequalities. So, honestly, I can't remember off the top of my head, but she, the, the, all the actions that she says to take. Um, she basically says that true, true inclusivity happens when people are given an equal voice. So, it's about creating a platform for people to share their diverse experiences. Um and, you know, she also talks about having more, than, like you say, more than training, that you have to have role models and representation. So it's that piece around visibility. So like that, making sure that people from diverse groups are getting the jobs and getting the airtime um, to give voice to, to that. Um, and then she also talks about she doesn't actually give, I wouldn't say she gives a clear direction. That would be one of the limits of the book as well, where she's not, she doesn't give you, a, like, it's more of a manifesto, but it's not with a directive. Um, it's more like she puts it on the individual to take responsibility for their own biases, just through awareness. So I would actually, I would highlight that as maybe a weakness of the book, that it doesn't give a clear framework for moving forward. But it does provide you with, I would say, the kind of academic studies, like a huge breadth across loads of different disciplines to kind of, in your own head, get a true sense of what mm -hmm. unconscious bias is. And I feel, I don't think I fully knew what it was before I read this book. I didn't really understand nuances as much as I thought I did. So mm. I'd say she doesn't provide like 
a clear path forward. No. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's it's um, um, the the really onus is um, on us to, as you said from from the book, to recognize um, why do we get certain triggers? Yeah. Why do we believe certain things? And and from from um, studies that I've done on the workings of the brain, the ABCB all method could be applicable here. I don't know whether she mentioned that, but it is to do with with challenging, with recognizing why do you have certain thoughts and behaviors and what beliefs it, it comes from and, you know, rectifying it from, from there. So, um, Is that like a CBT method or is it... A- a, B, C, B, O. Um, uh, so there's action, there's a belief. Um, there's the consequence, and then you, I think you decide which action. There's, it's actually, there's also, a, there's variations. I think, Mariana, there's an A, B, C, D, E version of it as well. And But like I think it's, I think it is somewhat steeped in, in cognitive behavioral therapy and just being aware, like I would have often used it in coaching around, fear of presentations right just as an example and and that you know you're always then your your belief is that everybody and i'm not bringing this up because you've oh, no. given yourself a hard time here tonight and even no, just it's the one that i would have tried to get myself over in the past but like mm-hmm. your belief is oh my god i'm doing a bad job here but the actual reality is you're not like it's it's just you're you're dwelling on what your belief and you're trying to feed that belief to to make it make it pr- true but but in reality it's um you know the feedback would be certainly a lot more positive than you would think and then that gives you that kind of um mm-hmm. i suppose confidence to say well actually these are little things i need to work on and these are things i'm good at so you know in in a nice sort of way that uh, that that's that's kind of what that is so. yeah, yeah, yeah. oh sorry no. yeah no, no, perfect i can I agree with Rob. Like, if, if we were to use an example, you've done so much better than you yourself credit for. That could be actually, we could use this as an example um, uh, to, to use this model. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. No, it's just a good, it's like that, you know, if you feel like you're trying to develop something, at least you can find a safe space like this. And actually, that is one thing she says in the book about it's important to create safe spaces um, to discuss this and I think that's okay that's probably the one action that isn't for individuals that she called out that if, if um, organizations want to tackle unconscious bias they need to create safe spaces to have the conversation she doesn't say how you do that though, which is the challenging part right yeah. <laughs> now I can only share from Apple the what I see at Apple is that they've, they've got women at Apple they've got black at Apple We've got LGBTQ at Apple. We've got like um, they call them DNAs groups for pretty much every sort of minority group that you could imagine. Yeah. Um, and they're really pushing it throughout the company. That they give you know podcasts. They're doing International Women's Month. There's mm-hmm. a huge amount of activity going on, so that it's opening up the spaces to have those conversations. Um, huge amount of training for managers. Um, challenges like community challenges that we can all drive as well within our teams so i guess that kind of aligns with what she suggests here how about rob what have you seen in, in 
the organizations you're dealing with or what's working or not working yeah um like like that so they're the dna is there i suppose what would be more generally called ergs or the uh, employee resource groups um mm-hmm. but it it ultimately comes down to um it's it's the behavior change right so it's it's kind of trying to come up with like i've seen tra- wrote about um certain organizations that create um scenarios that they would work with in a kind of a safe space to kind of say right these are the biases that could pop up what would you do in that instance and you would role play that out so that when it actually does happen you've you've kind of walked through the steps of doing it and a couple of them are like this program called active bystander so you're 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 watching it and you have maybe three or four options to to intervene on whether you directly call it out to say you're you're after doing a microaggression to somebody there or you talk to them afterwards or you talk to the their manager there's four or five different options but it's about the educational part is to know that everybody knows that these things are interventions that could be used so it if it does happen then it's not such a oh my god or that's i'm i'm either embarrassed by it or i'm um like if your manager tells you oh you know there was a report about you having said something that was undoubtedly unconscious and you didn't mean anything by it but we wanted to raise it to your to your attention so that next time you can you can see it like so so that's that's it like making taking action putting interventions um and and empowering each other to to kind of intervene and and to normalize that as well right not to make it like a taboo to do that yeah. like and that you're you know if i said that to you that doesn't you know you're not going to be um never talk to me again sort of thing because i called it out um and and yeah, yeah. Like, that's it that's no, sorry oh sorry hi good evening no this is andrea, hi, andrea. Um, i'm not shy i'm sorry i'm on a desktop with no uh, camera can i just say something about uh, your summary I really, really, really enjoyed it. Uh, um, it's very, very similar to something called Invisible Women. Has anyone read that book? No. And it's it's it, because the world is designed for men by men. It's everything from the temperature in your office at work is designed for male temperature. Uh, if someone has a heart attack, it, it, men feel it in their left arm, but women actually have totally different symptoms, but it will be delayed because they'll go by men's symptoms. Uh, wow. What else? A car accident. If women have a car accident, we're probably more likely uh, to be severely injured because it's all been designed for men, for a man's body, like yeah. the seatbelt across a woman's breast. So, it, it, um, uh, so was really really interesting and uh, I, I just I probably am a bit like yourself I, I'm left handed so you would not believe everything from tin can openers to desks at university everything is designed for right handed people and um, I'm also dyslexic everything is designed for people who can read and spell <laughs> properly and um, uh, 
also as well. I spent um, 20 years in London. I think, Linda, you you just came back, did you say? Yeah. From, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I don't know. I loved it. I absolutely loved it. And I loved all the different races, different colours. To come back to Shercock and Cav, and it yeah. was just an eye-opener. And my mother talking about the foreigners. And, uh, you know, it was... Uh, Mommy, do you not know what you sound like? Um, but uh, uh, my ex-husband was... was so my two children, I've been asked several times, have I adopted them? Um, um, my ex-husband talked about the BBC News compared to the RTE News. The RTE News, he said, was less biased compared to the BBC News, mm-hmm. say, for something like Palestine and Israel. Mm-hmm. So things I wouldn't notice. Mm-hmm. But but he would notice. So um, yeah, I think we're, we all have unconscious bias, and we just don't know it. But one thing, you, somebody said, how how what could you do? I, I think travel travel is one of the best things you can do just to see how other people live and how other people are. Yeah, that's that's exactly it. Like, and I think you know, I didn't notice it until you said it, Rob. Like that she hadn't uh, really provided you know, action steps, you know, and actually and that's it's actually a big gap when you think about it, seeing as the amount of work she's put into to writing the book itself. But um, but yeah. I, would, I would say that she's de- deliberately not put them in there, I would imagine, right? Just just because of, it sounds like the, 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 the depth of work that she's put into it, she just wants everybody to probably figure it out for themselves in a little bit of a way, I think, afterwards, you know? Yeah. Is she also is she also saying from a lot of the examples that there's a lot of neurological or uh, neurobehavioral aspect to it that you really have to consciously overcome? Like I always think about the fact that the, that we're living in cities and we're living mm-hmm. in groups very recently in our evolution, so our genetics are really not ready for today, and especially with international travel and mingling of people from all over the world that's even more recent so uh like we're used to tribalism we're used we're genetically used to tribalism we're used to watching out for danger and so uh yeah so i think there's two things there's that neurological issue which we all have to come overcome and then you mentioned at the end the systematic problems like the the structural societal problems that one person can't solve you know it's um and it's great like she does give kind of a very good overview of the different schools of thought and the kind of intersections. I suppose that's where you land then in realizing that there are these five or six things going on at the same time that you have to grapple with. Yeah. Um, but yeah, um, Andrea, I think especially with the pandemic, like how oh, we can't travel at the moment, so it'd be interesting. Would that have an you know a negative impact on opening up this conversation if we can't? travel for the next year or two that might lend itself to some interesting studies on is there any advice Nick, in the book towards um if if you are the 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 object subject of the bias being directed uh, towards um i still have a very strong accent uh, uh despite like half my life actually been outside of country i'm originally from so um um my London experience in particular wasn't good at all. Um, no. was, I remember people actually like families coming in in South London where I worked as a waitress. And um, um, once I approached them with a smile, they were saying, um, 
anybody here from um, e English speaking actually can serve us. So I was actually very much looked down. Um, like in the age 18, it did impact me a little bit. Um, mm -hmm. um, so I had to go over that. Um, it happened a few times in London. Wow. In a short period, just a few months um, that I worked. Um, never happened to me in, in, in Ireland to this extent. Uh, I mean, Irish people really... Um, it's good. <laughs> but um, what's been happening uh, up till now, um, I quite often get asked, you know, where I'm from. <laughs> so like a first question, and where are you from? <laughs> so I just say, like, from Dublin, <laughs> you know. <laughs> um, um, and then all the people do speak slower when they hear my accent and they make sure they pronounce everything very well <laughs> and louder <laughs> she does actually talk a lot she, there's a fairly significant um part that she dedicates to accents she says that there's a positive bias um for those who have the same accent um so this is bad news that i'm giving you but Basically, it's true that people do treat you differently, and that the accent would be one of those cues. So, and she dedicates about two pages in the book to that topic, and you know, from different angles as well. So, social, historical, and um, neurobiological, and also linguistical. So, um, she talked, she gave an example actually of a woman in 1941 who was Norwegian and she got injured by shrapnel and then started talking in a German accent after the uh, wound happened and then was completely ostracized by her community just because her she had a German accent. Mm -hmm. um, she gives a few more contemporary examples of, of how in-group, out-group thinking happens when you hear someone who has a different accent than you. So it's a good strategy to tell them you're from Dublin because it, it causes a kind of a cognitive dissonance, I think. It's like yeah. a pattern interrupt where you're like, they want to put you in a certain mm. outlook box based on accent and you kind of maybe give enough time to interrupt the mental, the quick path thinking pattern that happens. <laughs> so that's actually probably a good solution. But she doesn't okay, give any... I'll continue to do that. Guidance, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Neve, I was just going to say, um, I had read um, last year that um, I think uh, politics is the biggest divider in American families at the moment. And if you if you brought home a new girlfriend, boyfriend, whatever partner, what political party they're from yeah. is like the, the number one question, regardless of race or anything else, which I thought was really interesting because my husband is American and they're in Democrats, uh, and, it, and it comes up at the dinner table. So it's amazing how divisive it is, actually. Um, and the second thing I was going to add, I, I worked in early years for 10 years, and there was a big shift um, to bring in, like, dolls with different skin colours. We would have um, even pictures of families, of all sorts of family makeups, children with disabilities, but, you know, so it was really interesting. So there's been a real effort to kind of, I suppose, model that, um, for, for young children, which is really, really good. Um, and the other question I was going to ask, is she mentioned about personality at all, because like that's my work with introversion and... It didn't actually. No, no. Interesting. And like Myers... Like politics came up a lot, especially around Hillary Clinton in terms of gender and Trump in terms of that divisive in-out um, group thing. But Eight not... Time. 
personality didn't come up at all actually yeah 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 because Myers-Briggs came out with something last year they said nine out of ten people in the UK feel pressure to act extroverted so for many introverts they can feel like they have to act you know something else so it's interesting um and I think your point about modeling is very important in organizations and getting people like that's one of the things I would suggest people write blog posts about being an introvert and their experience you know and things like that yeah. so for for whatever the the diversity is so and you did a, an amazing job so well done <laughs> I just conscious of it being recorded like Rob you need it to be don't don't yeah kind of like, <laughs> but um one thing that she did talk about was tinder and she said there was a study done and it was recommended that you don't swipe left more than nine times <laughs> because if something happens <laughs> i have it written down here the more you swipe left the more the algorithm will give you undesirable or or less you know people who've already been swiped left on a number of times left is bad uh, right isn't it i, I can't remember it's been so long right. <laughs> but um she talks a lot about you know basically about how we value appearance and attractiveness and things like that um but she doesn't go into personality types and that's probably another kind of gap in the book really so that might be something for you to <laughs> here we go happy <laughs> <laughs> It's really interesting, though. Really interesting. So, thank you. Yeah, thanks. That just rem- reminds me there of um, Tinder, Issa, what you were it? saying about the the American <laughs> political divide. That uh, kind of one of the good news stories uh, in America and around the world is, but in America, it's kind of been the forefront. Is how the whole LGBT community in America has become, you know, went from being a a, a, a taboo to being completely normal in a, such a short period of time, maybe 10 years, you know, and they actually trace it back to Will and Grace and Ellen DeGeneres. They can almost see when the the thing started tumbling. And uh, so there's hope somewhere <laughs> that we can overcome these prejudices. Hopefully. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's definitely moving in the right direction, I think. Um, she, does an, she does an analysis in the book of um, magazine covers. There's a number of studies that looked at the number of people of colour, black, or I think they're black, Asian, or minority ethnic groups who are on the covers of magazines. And it was just shocking. Like they called out Vogue, they called out a bunch of UK publications, but some had none, like no people of that name, as they call it in the book, um, Origin. And, you know, there's a huge, grossly underrepresented even today um, in, in mainstream media. So mm. that was interesting. That's why the. Uh what is it? I know it's the music show, The Voice, right? That that's to remove the bias from how people look. Yeah. You know that that was one of the the big hooks on that, and even that other one that was out recently, that one where they were all dressed as kind of animals or hot dogs or something. That one was on just just there in the last few weeks. That um, it it disguised people completely so that they couldn't even look. Whereas The Voice, they were sitting with their back to them. With this, oh, yeah. they were dressed as like just like I don't know farm animals or whatever, but they were professional singers, and they they couldn't you know then be biased in 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 how they would um, select them to go through or not. So yeah. so there's lots of ways of kind of masking it. Did did she mention anything about neurodiversity at all, uh, Neve? That's an area I'm big 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 focus on at the moment. Not nothing around that. No, no, she didn't. It's interesting because to your point, John, like I talk a lot to clients about neurodiversity and 
where LGBTQ was 10 or 15 years ago was that kind of big hurdle. Neurodiversity now is that next one, right? The next diverse group that is getting a lot of attention, certainly in the IT space because of the, um, the, 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 the skills and traits that neurodivergent have um, are perfect for a lot of highly technical roles, but they're lacking in some of the more softer skills um, and how they're getting filtered out from recruitment um, systems as a result because they just don't map to some of the you know the competencies that you might need to be better at communication when you know you mightn't need that really at all but they're just being excluded so um, there's a lot of bias around that as well but that that's bias systematic bias in processes and systems that just need to be completely you know looked at left right and center yeah even things like eye contact, like making eye contact doesn't come naturally for many people. So, you know, not judging on that. Of course. Yeah. 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 That's not going to make you a better software developer, you know, but 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 they, that is one of those factors that might uh, unconsciously sway one person in, exactly. in one direction or not. Like, so it's crazy. How, yeah. can, you, how can you tell an extroverted engineer? He looks at your shoes when he's talking to you. <laughs> <laughs> talk actually about technology as well and how we tend to believe that it's objective um and that we think that systems and processes are free of bias but it's not true because basically it incorporates the biases of the designers and the data engineers who develop systems um who by the way are majority white male <laughs> and you know reinforces that you know the existing bias and stereotype and creates new ones that are then applied in the societal context that they're introduced into so yeah kind of self-reinforcing loop of bias yeah yeah, yeah totally totally so yeah they recommend the book but um yeah, I'd say definitely. I'll send over some links that I, I took. I made a little document with links and stuff that might be of interest. But actually, um, if if you want me, uh, send me the one page summary, and I'll put it in the um, template I use. So we have the. Oh yeah, perfect. Collateral. <laughs> I was looking at the uh, the table of contents on Amazon while you were talking. So. Um, it looks fascinating. What's the Bobsy Twins? What's that about? Oh, the Bobsy Twins. Oh, I can't remember. That's Sorry. Okay. It was an exactly. I'll have to read it. It's a children's book, yeah, in America. Yeah, and then it resulted in, that became a kind of a, a colloquial term in, in society. Uh, oh, you like the Bobsy Twins, but I don't actually know. I can't remember. <laughs> oh, yeah, they're, um, it was in the 50s. I just read it to my son when we were over there, actually. Yeah, I think it's from the 50s. And um, yeah, I guess, are they the perfect family or something? I don't know. <laughs> I forget. Mm. <laughs> cool. Very good. Well, look, I know we're up on the hour and Neve, thanks a million for that. And as you can see, the conversation is, is you know, I would say not just now, but nearly every time it's always the best part. Right. So so don't ever feel too pressured by uh, the, the, the read through. Um, and yeah, thanks for doing it. And Marianne, I think you're 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 signed up for for two weeks time again and then then we'll put a then we'll have to i'll start have to start kind of enticing others john you haven't done one since early days it must be your turn again soon it must be but you see i don't read any of these books so I that's don't okay have any. we can <laughs> we can bring something totally different in you know i'd like, have to yeah 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 um, what am i reading at the moment uh michael palin's tour of north korea so <laughs> <laughs> 
that, that is that'll that'll bring a different perspective to this. Yeah, yeah I talked about analogies two weeks ago, so you can bring that in, John. Analogies, <laughs> and we'd apply it to something. Yeah. Cool. All right, folks. Look, thanks again. Have a great rest of evening, bedtime, good week ahead, Andrea. Andrea, welcome again. I know this is one of your first ones, so thanks for chipping in on on your on your comments as well. I enjoyed it. Thank you very much, everyone. Take Thank care. You, bye. Good night, bye, all. Take thanks, care. Guys. Thanks, Dave. Good luck. Well done. Bye bye. Bye bye. Hey, folks. Thanks so much for listening to the show. If you enjoyed it, could you please consider helping me extend the reach of the podcast that a little bit further? You can do that in a number of ways. The number one way is to subscribe on your app of choice. This helps me with the chart ranking, leading to more folks stumbling across the podcast and checking it out. You could also repost it on your social media channels. Any of them would be great. And maybe even tell a friend in person or over the phone, pick up the phone, give them a call and tell them about the 1% Better podcast. Tell them about this episode or one that you've heard in the past. Any will do. I would really appreciate it. In the last year, we set up a 1% Better Slack community, which you can join for free and interact with me and other members of the community and improve through holding each other accountable and sharing monthly challenges. It's a lot of fun. Check it out. I'm into season four of this incredible journey and the more of these interviews and solo shows that I research, record and share, the better I believe that they get and more loaded with actionable takeaways that you can learn from. I know I've learned so much from it so far and it's always really, really fulfilling and rewarding when I hear from you on what you took from it. So do reach out, rob at robofthegreen.ie. And of everybody that listens, 90% listen and enjoy, but only around 10% actually take action, write down takeaways and put them into practice. I am convinced that if we can move that number a bit higher, the listeners will not only make steps forward towards their goals, but they will be more fulfilled and happy and better. Change doesn't happen overnight. It is hard, but it's all about taking the first step, whatever that is for you. You can absolutely do this. Make a plan, be deliberate, take action. Don't overreach. Start with those small incremental improvements and over time you will see great progress. It's all in the pursuit of betterness. So again, thank you so much for listening. Good luck and stay safe.